Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates the unsolved death of federal prosecutor Jonathan Luna in 2003. It is a true story. But the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. Judge, you're not going to believe this. What? The money is missing. What do you mean the money is missing? But Jonathan Luna's name was involved in that. Like, really? A prosecutor took the money? I don't think so. He tried to blame it on the FBI agent. And after that, I think Jonathan was not the most favored person on the FBI relationship list. But it always did bug me that it was the FBI office in Baltimore conducting this investigation. You know, is this one of the reasons that the U.S. Attorney's Office doesn't want to make public all of their findings in this case? This is Episode 9 and the finale of Season 3, The Phoenix. I'm your host, David Payne. since a federal prosecutor was found dead in rural Lancaster County. We will find out who did this. Was he trying to stage some sort of attack and went too far? I'm a crook, you a crook, he a crook, everybody a crook in prison. When the Baltimore field office of the FBI took it upon themselves to investigate what happened to the missing money, the investigation by definition was compromised. According to Prosecutor Jackie Koss's sworn statement, one of the FBI's own agents, Tony Campagno, was responsible for the money the entire case. That's accurate. So the law enforcement agent is always the person in charge of the evidence. The evidence should never leave the custody of the law enforcement agency. It's Tony's responsibility to withdraw the money from the safe and the the evidence from the FBI, transfer it to our trial prep room. Um, where we would keep whatever evidence we were going to use for trial. And we had a key to that room. And so he's able to then later, if he had to testify as to the custody of the evidence, he could say, you know, it was a secure facility because it's within the space of the U.S. Attorney's Office, which has security levels to begin with. And then within the U.S. Attorney's Office, it was under a secure room because it was under lock and key. And then trial starts and as those exhibits are submitted into evidence. Once the exhibit is admitted into evidence, the court keeps the exhibit until the end of trial. And there was no issue. There was no happenstance with that. But because the FBI was never able to come to a conclusion on who took the money, and because prosecutors and FBI agents would be prohibited by DOJ policy from commenting on what they witnessed, And because the press made this connection between his death and the missing money, Jonathan's name was dragged through the mud. And once that suggestion of shadiness was out there, it wasn't surprising that the press and the public by extension would be receptive to similar suggestions about Jonathan. Gail Gibson of the Baltimore Sun explains. There was a whisper campaign about his personal life and 
whoever knows anyone, right? And what their interests are and what they do, you know, in their personal time. But it was always this odd question of, is this whisper campaign driven because they think they've learned something about Jonathan's personal life that they would rather not ever be public as a way to kind of protect his character? Or the reverse, right? That they want even just the rumor of it to become public to divert attention away from what had happened. Your job is to report what the sources are saying because that's the official story. But I'm just wondering what your thoughts were around that in the background as you took all that in. Sure, I, I think that's some of what I'm sharing now is being outside of journalism now that you sort of look back and think about all the ways that all writing and reporting is kind of a recursive process. But daily journalism doesn't always give breathing space for that. And so facts, rumors, information from sources, you report it in hopes of assembling over time some closer version of the truth. And I think Jonathan's story was one that that didn't get a lot closer to a version of the truth. And that's always been, you know, a real regret, I would say. And you don't always end up with something that resembles the whole, I guess. And while I have sympathy for Gail Gibson's predicament as a Daily Beat reporter, there is no question the Sun's reporting affected the trajectory of the investigation. And so her personal regrets about Jonathan's postmortem portrayal notwithstanding, there are some friends of Jonathan, like Barbara Skidmore, who aren't so ready to give the press a pass. I mean, it's ridiculous. That's like a rag paper, the Sun, for doing that. Shame on them. I don't know if sixth grader could have figured out you should ask more questions. How could that be? You know, you get these sources from federal law enforcement and you're only as good as your sources, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you have to print what they say. Well, I mean, it just shows a level of both inexperience and immaturity because I don't care who you are. I mean, I teach my granddaughter, you know, it's hard today with all the platforms of information, you know, and when she comes to me with something and she says, did you know such and such? I said, well, let's talk about what's the source. What would be that person's interest in saying that? You know, what else would you look at to find out the truthfulness or the completeness of that story? You mean a journalist doesn't know to do that? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. But you know what they say, don't hate the player, hate the game. But in this game, the traditional rules about printing what your federal sources have to say seem downright quaint, as the sources themselves were part of the investigation they were spinning. And to make matters worse, these same authorities are hiding behind claims that the investigation remains open to keep the case files away from the public, while leaking the suicide theory to the press. Judge Andre Davis. I assume the, the Bureau would never give you their investigative file. Exactly. Yeah. They'll give it to nobody. And so, you know, there's one way to clear this up on whether or not this was a suicide, release the autopsy. And that's been deep-sixed. You know, I never read about stabs in the back. I, I recall very distinctly being very dissatisfied with the reports of the autopsy. I recall reading something to the effect that, well, 
In this county, we don't have an A-team when it comes to forensic work. I don't mean to cast dispersions on anybody, but I would like to think that a professional forensic pathologist would be able to say more definitively what happened to him in his last minutes. Especially when you consider that Jonathan was one of only two federal prosecutors potentially killed in the line of duty. And the other guy, Tom Wales, has had a full-time investigative team attached to his case for 20 years, costing millions of dollars. And on that point, I must reserve my greatest judgment for a failed investigation on the investigators themselves. But don't take my word for it. In 2005, DOJ's Inspector General conducted an investigation of the FBI's investigation of the murder. This report was so critical of the FBI's mismanagement of the case that it drew bipartisan ire from members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. That report, too, of course, was deep-sixed by DOJ. And so it is left to journalists, and maybe even former federal prosecutors like Jackie Koss and me, to deduce what we can from back channels. And if you want to know what I think about what the evidence tells us, well, Jackie does a pretty good job channeling my thoughts. As prosecutors, you know, I go back to my experience investigating violent crimes. You have to let the evidence speak to you. And again, I haven't examined photographs. I haven't seen an autopsy report. I have not gone to the scene of the crime. But the information that I have is that he had an extraordinary number of stab wounds and that some of those were categorized as defensive stab wounds, stab wounds that you would suffer in your arms, you know, and then in the forearms and stuff. So that is completely inconsistent with suicide, particularly someone who doesn't have a prior history of suicidal tendencies or self-mutilation or any sort of, you know, any that. One of the reasons I was so interested in this case was exactly your framework for looking at it, which was if you look just at the physical evidence, how do you even start that part of the discussion, right? So we talked to the guy, an FBI behavioral guy, that was quoted in the paper as saying that this was not a murder. These 36 stab wounds were more indicative of hesitation wounds. We talked to that guy and he said, "I, I never saw the evidence. That was just something that was described to me. Like, okay, how did they get from the crime scene and what happened that night to this and when you start unraveling it what it looks like quite frankly is that those besmirchments about his character have more to do with an inability to solve the case and not wanting to have some kind of case out there that is an open case indeed there is so much to the crime scene that simply did not square with a suicide including the site itself that it's hard to know where to start when picking it apart. And why drive to that location? Right. If what you're going to do is you're going to end your life, why drive to that location? What's the significance? Because there usually is, right, when somebody... I mean, there's just so many open questions. Yeah. And, it, you know, was, wasn't there dollar bills or something found at the scene um, inside the car or whatever? So it's, it just made no sense. And what, he decided to float dollar bills around his vehicle before he went ahead and, and then crawled under his vehicle, right? Because wasn't he face down under the vehicle or something, you know? Yeah. So that 
theory just never made sense to me simply because it was completely inconsistent with the evidence at the scene. And so why is the physical evidence important is because the physical evidence is not going to change. You know, witnesses' perceptions may change, witnesses' accounts may change, but the physical evidence remains the same. (laughs) And so if the physical evidence is indicating that there was an attack, then that's going to supersede any sort of like theory based on circumstantial evidence, which is what they're talking about, right? Circumstances that might have put him in a certain mind frame. Yeah, I, I don't know. I know it's personal to you. It feels, it feels personal to us, but it's, really, it's truly personal to you. So I can't imagine how you process that, but it, it is maddening. It is maddening. And I remember a female agent interviewing me again. It was, I don't remember if it was her or someone else who floated the possibility that he might have committed suicide and just being like, you know what, if this is where you guys are are going with this, I don't, you know, I don't want to partake because I just think that that's unsustainable. But I would love for the case to be clarified. You know, I think it's so important for the family, especially having worked violent crime that having that closure is so important to the people left behind, to knowing what happened and and being able to make peace with that. But with an open investigation and the uncertainty as to what took place or who was responsible, I can't imagine the pain that that causes the family. And I'm sorry to say that at least at this point, we cannot provide that closure. I believe the circumstances of Jonathan's last few hours and the known physical evidence make it extremely likely that he was tortured and then killed. I could spout off on who would have had a motive for such a heinous act, but you're smart people. You can connect your own dots. And I don't think expressing my personal opinions will mitigate the family's pain either. However, I do believe we have debunked this notion that Jonathan Luna killed himself or had anything to do with the missing money. And I hope that knowing that at least gives his children peace that he did not abandon them. He was a super, super sweet man. Like just a sweet, generous man who was very involved in the care of his parents. Like I said, he was, he loved, loved being a dad. I mean, when I had like no idea what I was gonna get my kids for Christmas, Jonathan was already getting packages in the mail at his office, because he would keep the packages at his office to hide them from his kids for Christmas. And just very proud of his wife. I remember always talked about her with such love and admiration. And it was heartbreaking. You know, heartbreaking what happened to him. He's a good human being. And more than anything, what I want for Jonathan's family is for this audience to bring enough pressure to bear to appoint a special counsel to take a fresh look at the evidence. Something I would certainly sign up for and maybe even a certain former federal district court judge might be in for as well. You guys gotta solve this case. You gotta. 
as you know, these, these things, if you let them die, they die. Yeah. Is there someone out there that has information that has not been disclosed to investigators? I kind of believe there is. And I hope, and I'm sure you guys hope, anybody would hope that someday they'll come forward with at least a plausible account of what actually happened. I'm, I'm sure his family would desperately like to know. And while our collective hopes will remain centered on finding somebody somewhere who can provide closure for Jonathan's family, before we leave you this season, we want to share the closure we sought for the family of another Baltimore man. When we started looking at the Luna case, we were at the precipice of a year the world will never forget. A pandemic had just begun that would force all of us to look inward when we couldn't venture out. And the social unrest ignited by the George Floyd murder and amplified by a failing economy tested this nation like never before. And through it all, among all the people I spoke with, family, friends, interviewees for this podcast, the person who had the biggest heart and the biggest faith was the guy locked in the smallest of cells. And I couldn't help but want to learn more about how he did that. So I read his books, including a 2019 book he wrote called 2020 Faith that literally prophesized this terrible year. And as I read his words and reflected on the circumstances of not only his life, but my own, I think I surprised even the closest people around me. It's really interesting how invested you are in this, in Mako's case in particular, because we are looking at the Jonathan Luna case, but there's something here, there's more here. I just have never seen you like this before. I mean, I don't think you or I could do what he has done in prison in those kind of environments. I mean, think about it, Jody, to be locked up, we've been locked down in quarantine. You know, I put that in huge air quotes with the hardship of living in our houses. And, you know, this country has been, oh, woe is me. You know, it's been three months and we can't get our haircuts or get tattoos. Here's a man who is locked down 23 hours a day and he has more positivity and he has more productivity than 99% of the people. His story is also a testament to having a purpose-driven life. And the only way you can stay sane when you're sentenced to 25 years in jail is to find that purpose. And he's found it in creating this ministry, mentoring all these men, helping people through their struggles. He's found meaning for his life. You know, we talk a lot in this country about rehabilitation and redemption, but I don't think I've ever met anyone before who so personified the concept. And whether it was the Holy Spirit, as Nako would maintain, or some other force, I don't know, but I felt compelled to do something about his situation. Because even though Nako was wrong about Jonathan Luna, it wasn't right to lock this or any other man away in a cell 23 hours a day. 
call is from? Echo Brown. An inmate at a federal prison. This call is being recorded and is subject to monitoring. All right, I'm with you. I'm with you. Tell me what's going on there in your facility. Well, the same. I haven't heard anything, any breakouts in this facility. We come out once a day for an hour. So we get 23 hours. We got an hour to take a shower, get on the phone, check the emails. Did you see my note about the letter? Yes, I did, and I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a letter to the judge. The letter says, in essence, look, I'm a journalist looking into this case. I understand that NACO has several matters pending before you, including a first step release and a commutation of sentence. And that in looking at this case, I believe that you are the ideal candidate for somebody that should get early release, whether under the First Step Act or compassionate release due to COVID. It's not a legal document, but it's a letter asking her to have a renewed look at the case. Writing a letter on NACO's behalf to the judge overseeing his case now was both an easy and hard decision to make. We had never met in person, and I would typically be reluctant to vouch for someone under these circumstances. But we had been talking for months. I had been doing character reference checks, and I believed his teachings were sincere. And in the end, it wasn't so much his words that moved me, but his actions. There was no doubt in my mind that Nako had transformed in prison, and in so doing had positively impacted the lives of hundreds if not thousands of men. And there was one other person I had met during this podcast that had likewise impacted the lives of the men he came in contact with. And I wondered if Judge Davis would join me in helping NACO to continue to find his purpose. Wow, I would love to see him and talk to him. You know, as journalists, we're supposed to be impartial in these kind of things. But I wrote wrote a letter to the judge in his most recent pleading Mm. as, as saying, you know, If you believe in rehabilitation, this is the kind of guy that doesn't pose a threat to society, in my opinion, and is an example of kind of the inequities in the system. You you know, he was sentenced under these guidelines that are unconstitutional. He couldn't get relief from that for a variety of legal reasons. It really just highlights all the problems. I agree. He must be getting close to 50 years old. He is. I'm really curious, as you look back on your career, If you could undo any of that, would you? I would never have given NACO 25 years without parole. The way the sentencing guidelines work is you work down the y-axis and you go out on the x-axis and there's your sentence right there. That's pretty much what he got, 25 years. Of course, the trauma on the tellers was real, and I get that, but nobody was injured. I'm really curious to know whether he's he ever admitted his involvement. Does he admit his involvement to you? He does. Yes. Okay, okay. Well, I I really look forward to the podcast because I'm anxious to test my two-decade-old theory about what was going on with him and in his mind and so on against whatever it is he finally discloses to you or to others. One Saturday morning, as I was getting out of my car, my phone rang. And I was pleased to enable Judge Davis to scratch that two decades old itch. The call is from. Echo Brown. 
an inmate at a federal prison. Hang up to decline the call or to accept. Dial 5 now. If you wish to block... You there? Yes. Hello? Okay. Good to hear from you. Do you want me to uh, see if we can get the judge on this morning? Yeah, let's do that. Judge okay. Davis? Yes. Nico? Yes. Oh, I'm just working. I feel honored to be able to pull you two together, and I just thought it would be worth having a conversation. Well, Mr. Brown, may I call you Nako? Yes, please, sir. I was quite pleased to receive David's phone call a few weeks ago, and it strikes me that uh, you have really evolved into a person who is more of the person you always wanted to be. Am I right about that? Yes, sir, you are. Right, myself. Right, myself. Well, I have long believed that none of us is defined by the worst thing or things we've ever done. And I think that the arc of your life seems to bear that out. I'm told that you're doing some really, really great work with young people these days. And at this point, I think I will let the discussion between these two men stay between them except to amplify one part of the exchange that seemed to encapsulate the journey that was this season. And I reminded what Joseph said when he met his brothers. He says, what y'all meant for evil, God meant you for good. To bring the past such it is this day to save many lives. And that's what our purpose is, is to save lives. Yeah. My email tagline, as David knows, I quote Toni Morrison, who said, If you are free, then your principal job is to free others. And if you have power, then you should empower others. And that's That's kind of how I try to live my life. That's powerful. I love it. Yeah. So we are blessed. We are very highly blessed. Three months to the day after that call, after hundreds of federal prisoners would die from COVID, I got a garbled call from NACO. And for the first time ever, it wasn't preceded with, this call is from a federal prison. Okay, now we're on. You got me? Yep, I'm I'm, I'm here. How are you? I'm feeling great, man. God is doing his thing. Take the phone to let me out on a night. This is the first time somebody's given you a break on getting out earlier. (laughs) Wow. Absolutely. And guess what? What? Judge Ellen Hollander had granted NACO's long-shot motion for compassionate release. One of his students would meet him at the bus stop and drive him 20 hours to his wife and family in Oklahoma. I will say this, Dave. The lawyer that your letter had a significant impact on the judge's decision. Wow. Yeah, a significant impact on the judge's decision. He, he said he was going to call you. He said you that. He asked me to play I received a lot of life lesson back from NACO in return. And when I spoke with him the following day, 
he was teaching me one final lesson on gratitude and perspective. What does it feel like to be out breathing that fresh air? Imagine it's like a rebirth. Absolutely. That's the perfect way to put it. Absolutely. You know, one moment you are in the cell, locked up, and then the next moment you're on the road, driving from one state to another, and you appreciate the fresh air, the birds, the sunrise, sunset. You know, you appreciate a lot of things that you take for granted. What surprised you the most on the drive? Just moving, just being in motion, you know, and going forward. When you're incarcerated, you go in circles. Everything is in circles. Even when you go out into the yard, you're walking around in circles. So to be able to go forward and not go in circles, the whole lot. It was a long road. And, you know, what inspired me about your story was that as long as it was, you still kept your faith, which is going to make you so resilient in the next half of your life whatever that looks like. Right. And that's what you have to do. I imagine myself getting the opportunity to have a second chance. And I knew that uh, I had to have faith in order to see that. Hey Somebody Somewhere listeners, I hope you enjoyed this season. Please stay tuned for a special bonus episode where I go deeper with Nako on his family, his ministry, and his decision to rob banks. Thank you again for listening. Here goes the devil telling me to lie again But tears I'm around me Says it's all right to pretend that you can get more than you give. Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Original score and voiceover work provided by Hallie Payne. Artwork provided by Evan McGlynn and Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Jonathan Luna case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Dear God, I hate to say I'm sorry. Just one.